0: Jesus' name. Amen. To be great is to be misunderstood. At least that's what Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote in his 1841 essay entitled Self Reliance. He writes Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton, and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. While we might disagree with measuring greatness by how one is understood, as Emerson has, we can agree that Jesus was great and that He was misunderstood. Luke 7, Luke chapter 7, verse 22, we're given a report of Jesus' ministry. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. You'd think such actions would be accepted by all, that no one would misunderstand, misconstrue, misinterpret such things. Furthermore, in light of the promise given to Israel that a deliverer would come to save them, well, what else would they expect? What more would someone do than what Jesus had done? Jesus claimed to be that deliverer, that Messiah, and he proved it. He proved his claim with, I would say, sufficient evidence. Take, for example, the resurrection of Lazarus, which we've been studying over the last three weeks. Jesus called a man out of death, having been dead four days. And He did this neither under the cover of night nor only in the company of maybe a small group of His own disciples, but He did this in pure sight. He did it in plain sight, excuse me, and for all to see. And so the report that was given to us by Luke in Luke's gospel was true. The dead are raised up. The Deliverer has come indeed. Of course, not everyone misunderstood Jesus. In fact, John actually says in our passage this morning that most understood. It's kind of a surprise. John eleven forty five says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He had done, believed in Him, and so many did believe, at least John eleven forty five 45 tells us that. And I think we have good reason to think that the many here in verse 45, that they do possess true saving faith. Two reasons. Well, you remember in John 11, verse 4, Jesus said that God would be glorified. Remember this, God would be glorified in the resurrection of Lazarus. And the Bible tells us that, well, God is glorified through belief. 2 Corinthians 4.15, as God's grace, it says, as God's grace extends to more and more people, His grace through faith, as it extends, as more and more people believe, it brings glory to God. Secondly, second reason why the many in verse 45 are true believers, well, they're in contrast with another group. Luke 11.46 says, but some of them, it says, so you have a many and then you have a sum. Some. some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. While many of the Jews saw the miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and they glorified God, they believed, some went to the Pharisees, and here likely, I think, as the story plays out, they went with a malicious intent. If greatness is to be measured by whether or not one is understood as Emerson suggested then Jesus was great he was misunderstood at the very least his ministry as verse 45 says was misunderstood by some in this passage yet we'll see that it was greatly misunderstood by the leaders in Israel and we'll see this play out as we continue through the gospel of John and you know you know that to be true Verses forty-five and verse verses forty-five and verse forty-six of chapter eleven. Many saw a savior, but some did see a usurper. Nearly all accepted Jesus, but a few saw him as an encroacher. And only a few were needed. Only a few were needed to unfold the divine purpose—a divine purpose that involved a man dying for a nation. And not for that nation only, but, as we'll see, to gather into one the children of God who are, it says, scattered abroad. And it's through unwitting, unknowing, ignorant instruments, unknowing, ignorant instruments meaning unwitting people that will see this unfold. God will use people who are working to achieve their own sinful purposes to achieve His. And while working to achieve their own objectives, these people will unknowingly and at the same time achieve His objectives. With one action, the death of Jesus, the aim of men will coincide with the aim of God. They'll overlap. We'll see that this morning. That being said, if you would please stand and we'll read our passage this morning, as we typically do, we stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57 is the passage in question this morning. John eleven forty-five. again, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that is, raised Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. He should let them know so that they might arrest him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's our big idea this morning we'll see God's purpose unfold in three phases through unwitting instruments. God's purpose unfold in three phases through unwitting instruments. As I've said, Jesus was misunderstood. When the Pharisees received news that Jesus had raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, well, they didn't take that this is a positive, but they took a position of opposition. And verse 47 tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting, a council. They gathered together the, the Sanhedrin to discuss the matter. And this meeting gives us the first phase this morning. The first phase is this, the problem of the unwitting instruments, the problem of the unwitting instruments. Look at the dialogue in verses 47 and 48. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So, what's the problem? Well, first off, Notice they don't, or they can't, we should say, deny the reality of the miracles. They can't deny what Jesus is doing, although they're, of course, very disrespectful. This man, they say, this this fellow, you might say, literally, he performs many signs. We're not going to even use his name. This fellow performs many signs. Can't deny the signs, but any consideration that Jesus might actually be the Messiah well, that's immediately quenched by political fears. Their thinking goes something like this. Seeing that Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah, if we let Him go on, everyone will follow Him, and this will result in some revolutionary movement. When the Romans see it, They will conclude that we, that is the Sanhedrin, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees together, are incapable of maintaining law and order. And this experiment of indirect rule in which the Romans have permitted us to have this this place, as they say, and this nation, it will be abandoned. The Romans will come and take away whatever autonomy, whatever self-rule we have left. This is the problem. Therefore, we, we must come to their aid. So, what's fueling these political fears? Well, notice they said the Romans will take away both our place and our nation. Most commentators believe the, the place here is a reference to the, temp, the temple. There's good reasons to believe this. These leaders might have good reason for such a fear, for the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians, you might remember, in 586 B.C. And while the temple was reconstructed to some degree 70 years later, it really wasn't until Herod and the Roman Empire cooperated together and the the Jews were able to kind of decorate and embellish this temple to excess. They didn't want that taken away from them. The reference to our nation no doubt refers to this semi-autonomous status they were given by the Romans. The Pharisees were very concerned about the practice of their religion. They had worked hard to free themselves from the dominion of the Hasmoneans and Pompey, the ruler, and the Herodians. They had had worked very hard in that period between Malachi and Matthew to free themselves from, from all those rulers, and so they finally had this temple that they could actually live out their law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were less concerned about their ability to keep every detail of the law. They were the, the rich aristocrats, you might say. What they wanted was to retain their wealth, their position, their status, their comfort. They wanted their position of authority. So whether you were a Pharisee and you, you didn't want your, the, the, the uh, the law, the ability to perform the law taken away in the temple, or you were a Sadducee and you you wanted your wealth and your power, either way, Jesus was a problem. He was a problem. Now, all the priests were Sadducees. I don't know if you know that or not, but the Sadducee sect was the priests were Sadducees, and so they're the ones that clearly dominate the meeting. Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas... Who was high priest that year, he said to them, You know nothing at all. For John to say that Caiaphas was the high priest that year doesn't mean he was the high priest for one year only. It just simply means that he was the high priest in the in the year in question. What we might call the faithful fateful year, (laughs) the year that Jesus was tried and crucified. Caiaphas was the high priest during that fateful year. In fact, Caiaphas maintained his office longer than any other high priest in the first century. From about A.D. 18 to A.D. 36, he was the high priest, a a good length of time. And we actually will meet Caiaphas later in the Gospel of John, although we don't see a lot of details. We'll meet him again, but Matthew does give us details, and I do think it's helpful to read just a a short section in Matthew to, to kind of color in who Caiaphas was. And so I'm going to do that now. It's Matthew 26, verses 59 through 68, so we can get a little bit of a better picture of who this man was. Matthew 26, verse 59 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put Him to death, This is what's commonly called a kangaroo court, is what's happening here. But they found none, of course, though many false witnesses came forward, at least But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Of course, those were false witnesses, right? What other proof do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? Essentially, Caiaphas is teeing up Jesus with false testimony so that they will just declare him guilty so they can put him on the cross. Then they spit in his face. They struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is a man here that's orchestrating all these events. Caiaphas. It's interesting that even in that passage in Matthew 26, the topic of the temple comes up. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in general were so blinded by the religious system they had built that their own Messiah was standing in front of them and they looked right through him, couldn't even see him. Finally, we can't miss how insulting Caiaphas is in saying, you know nothing at all. It's a very rude statement, don't you think? Apparently, the Sadducees were notoriously rude. Josephus, uh, historian actually writes about this a little bit. He tells us the behaviors of the Sadducees, Sadducees to one another is rude, and their dialogue with their equals is rough, as with strangers, end quote. And so here we see the, the arrogance of the Sadducees in action. The open rudeness, even vulgar nature is in line with what we know and what we'll see from the Sadducees. So the problem of these unwitting instruments, is clear. And the problem, really, if we were to distill it down to a word, is what? It's Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is really the problem. And so, what the Sanhedrin plans to do about this problem moves us to a second phase. I promised you three. Here's the second one. Verses 50 through 52, we'll find the prophecy of the unwitting instruments. The prophecy of the unwitting instruments instruments. Look at verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, here's an interesting bit of logic. Thankfully, Caiaphas is, of course, tongue-in-cheek, thankfully Caiaphas is able to see through the matter and is able to confront the problem with the brutal political realism that is needed. In a political crisis, we must face some hard political realities. And the better part of wisdom suggests the death of one man is a small price to pay for the survival of the whole nation, is it not? Caiaphas says, it is better, it is expedient, it is to your advantage, with cunning Caiaphas is connecting the personal interests, their personal interests, with their political interests. What is better, what is expedient, what is most advantageous to them is in preserving their position and their power is the same exact thing that will conserve the nation placed under their charge. How convenient. Notice the tactic that Caiaphas employs, We can call this the false dilemma Fallacy or a false dichotomy. We do this sometimes. We present two choices, two outcomes, two sides to an argument. This tactic is used to force our foe into our desired position. We tactfully leave out any middle ground. It's exactly what Caiaphas has done here. Friends, there are only two choices before us one man's death or the death of a nation. told you earlier that through unwitting instruments, unknowing, ignorant people, that we'd see the divine plan unfold, that God would use people who are working to achieve their own sinful purpose to achieve His good and righteous purpose, and that while working to achieve their own objectives, these people would unknowingly at the same time achieve His objectives. Look at verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. With all the evil intention left intact, Caiaphas said what he wanted to say, yet God Said what he wanted to say. As a man standing in God's appointed office, the office of high priest, he speaks forth, you might say, from that office, and he makes a prophecy, and he does it unconscious of the fact. He doesn't even realize he's speaking from his office and making a prophecy. He is an unwitting instrument of God or as I have phrased it, an unwitting instrument, from another perspective, of death. Now there's two parts to Caiaphas' prophecy. He says that Jesus would die for the nation. That Jesus would die for the nation. Look again at Caiaphas's prophecy in verse 50. It is better for you that one man should die, it says, for the people. For the people. Very literally, the prophecy is that one should die in behalf of, in behalf of or instead of, is what it says. The death that Caiaphas speaks of is a vicarious death, a vicarious sacrifice, or as we like to say, it's a substitutionary death. As Morris said, if he dies, the nation lives, it is his life instead of theirs. As we've seen, Caiaphas, of course, is thinking purely on a political level, yet John, he invites us in to think kind of from God's perspective. And Jesus, and through John, he's speaking here of the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus would die for the nation, and the second part of that prophecy is that Jesus would die to gather into one the children of God who are, it says, scattered abroad. Now, I have to admit, there's a very kind of Jewish flavor to this prophecy. To speak about the scattered children of God brings to mind the Jews of the dispersion. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Jews over the course of history, there are many times in which foreign nations have come and kind of trampled over them and, and divided them and split them up. So, the, the Jews were scattered abroad. This is what the reference to the dispersion is. They've been dispersed out from their land. So, it, the, the prophecy, really, we, we sense that in this prophecy that, that God would bring His people back to their place, the children of God who are scattered abroad abroad. The prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel both speak about a future time in which God will gather the Jews, gather the children of Israel into the promised land. You can write down Isaiah 43 verse 5 for a quick reference there. Isaiah, God says through the prophet Isaiah, I will bring your offspring, I will bring uh, Israel from the east and from the, the west and I will gather you can write down Ezekiel thirty four twelve and Ezekiel chapter 36, pretty much the whole chapter there as well, that talk about that. And this is true, God will gather into one the Jewish children of God who are scattered abroad. Yet it's also true that God will gather any and all who receive His Word and believe in Him. And from Wherever they are dispersed, God will gather them into one community of the Messiah. Caiaphas' words weren't big enough. John has a a bigger gathering in mind through the prophecy. This reminds us of Jesus' words in the previous chapter that we studied in John 10, verses 15 and 16. You recall Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep. Remember that? I have other sheep that are not of this fold i must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd in two parts then the prophecy here we have the prophecy of the unwitting instruments a prophecy that one man that one man will lay down his life for another for another people i do believe there's an important theological truth found in this passage And we must draw it out. It's found in the phrase that one man should die for the people, as I said, in behalf of or instead of. This really does speak to the substitutionary death of Christ, that one man would die in behalf or instead of the people. It's sometimes said that the death of Christ was or is sufficient for the whole world. And I suppose that that's true in some sense. In some other world, you might imagine, if all believed, right, theoretically, in some other world, if all believed, then surely the death of Christ solely would cover all their sins. But that is not the world we live in. It's a different world. It's not our world. And neither in our world do all believe. All don't believe. The Bible does not speak of the death of Christ in terms of an abstract sufficiency. That's not the language the Bible uses when it talks about the atonement. When the Bible speaks of the death of Christ, as we're seeing here, it does so in terms of its vicarious nature, its substitutionary character. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. The death of Christ, the atonement, the at-one-ment, meant 2 are, are separated, and they become one, they become at-one, you might say, the atonement, is not sufficient for man unless the Lord Jesus Christ died for that man. First Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, For God has not destined us for wrath, speaking to believers, For God has not destined us for wrath, But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, those who would escape wrath, the believers. If the atonement is sufficient, it is so because it is efficacious, it has a certain effect, a certain power over those who believe. You might say, it affects the salvation of all for whom it was made. The death of Christ is not spoken of in terms of affording us the possibility of salvation. That's not the language the Bible uses. It's not about a possibility of salvation. It's about accomplishing our salvation. That's how the Bible speaks about the atonement. Isaiah, consider the following. Isaiah 53, 8 says, he was stricken for the, trans- the transgression of my people. Think about the passage we 're in, in fact. He calls them the children of God who were sprat- uh, scattered abroad. they're already called children, because he 's about to die to redeem those children in the same way Isaiah 538 says he was stricken for the transgressions of my people. Matthew 121 tells us that Mary would bear a son and she would call His name Jesus. Why? For He would save His people from their sins. Matthew 20, 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That is a specific group. Unless you're a universalist, it has to be a specific group. Unless He redeemed many meaning all. That's an impossibility. What did we already study in John 10, verse 11? Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? For the sheep. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's a specific love that he has for his specific people. He loved the church. And what did he do to show that love? He gave himself up for her to purchase those ones the children that were scattered abroad his children Titus 2:14 says Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession He redeemed us a people for his own possession The NIV is a little clearer, maybe. The NIV says Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. He redeemed a people that are his very own. That's how the, the Bible speaks about the substitutionary death of Jesus, to purchase particular people chosen before the foundations of the world. Jesus died for you specifically, not for the opportunity for you to believe, but He died to actually purchase your redemption. His death was specifically, particularly for you. If, in fact, you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, which I trust you have. Hebrews 2.17, another verse, Jesus became a faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, unless you're a universalist, it must be a specific group of people. Caiaphas' prophecy then, that one man should die for the people, is not an abstract declaration concerning salvation. That's not what Upper even means. It's in behalf of. He died for particular people. That's what his prophecy is saying. It's a prophecy that a ransom price would be paid for the eternal redemption of a certain number of sinners and for their particular sins. This gets us to the next phase in our text. We saw the problem of the unwitting instruments, the prophecy of of the unwitting instruments. And number three here in this third phase, we have the plot of the unwitting instruments, verses 53 through 57. Let's look at that together. So, verse 53, "'From from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples.'" Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Verse 53 is very clear. The decision had been made. They made plans to put him to death. And as we've discovered, although this decision was made by the hands of murderous men, the unwitting instruments of death, as I've called them, it's a decision that will ultimately serve the redeeming love of God. Both are true although we're going to have to wait a little bit because the passover is at hand verse 54 tells us that Jesus fled into the wilderness with his disciples so while the jews were busy preparing for the passover Jesus was alone with his disciples preparing for something else he was preparing them for another kind of passover we'll see in the weeks ahead one that would be celebrated not through the ritual ritual killing of a paschal lamb but through the vicarious sacrifice Of the Lamb of God. Something that really comes to the forefront in this passage, as we've mentioned, is the connection between what we might call the plotting of men and the plotting of God. While men plot to kill, God is plotting to save. Sometimes we ask the question, Who's to blame for the death of Jesus? We kind of play with that in our mind. Is it the Romans? Herod? The Gentiles? The Sanhedrin? The people of Israel? Who's to blame? Well, the Bible actually does tell us who's to blame in Acts 4.27 says "For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. As it turns out, they're all culpable. They're all guilty. The answer is yes. But even this doesn't exhaust the full truth about who killed Jesus. You know the words of Isaiah 53:10? says, yet it was the will of the Lord, we know this verse, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He, that is the Lord, Yahweh, has put Him to grief. And the verse tells us why He did this also. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, that's why, to pay the penalty. To purchase our redemption. It was the Lord's will to crush him, to break him, to lead the lamb to a slaughter so that all who would believe in him, anyone who would believe in him, would find their way to that redemption and be saved. That's the gospel. It's the best news ever that we find forgiveness of sins not by coming to church, not by doing anything special jumping through hoops, whatever you you might imagine, through faith, by believing in His perfect redemption. The fact that God Himself ordained the death of Jesus, of course, neither exonerates the Romans, the Sanhedrin, the people of Israel, nor does it exonerate Caiaphas, even if He's the one that actually spoke that prophecy. I think it's fair to say that the cross of Christ represents the most evil action ever carried out. I think I can say that. The most evil action perpetrated by men is the death of Jesus. They killed God. I I don't know if there's another category. I don't know what it is. It's got to be the most evil action ever committed on this earth, in this world, in all of the universe. The very Son of God, the true light which gives light to everyone, the one who made the world and all that was in it was mocked. He was spit at. His beard was torn out. He was tortured. He was killed. It was the evil of all evils. The most dreadful deed ever devised. The most unpleasant plot ever perpetrated. And yet... What does Ephesians 5, 2 tell us? Christ gave himself up for us. Here's the way it's described. A fragrant offering to God. That most heinous evil is also called a fragrant offering to God. I don't know if you can preach the sovereignty of God bigger than that. In terrible wonder, God's purposes unfold through unwitting instruments of death. God works His righteous deeds through the evil acts of unrighteous agents. And far from being culpable of evil, He is not culpable of evil. He demonstrates how all His actions are good and how He can even work the greatest of evils. He can even work that for good. I hope you can begin to see the implications of that. I told you the big idea this morning. God's purpose unfolds in three phases through unwitting instruments. I know it's a lot to say. Forgive me. God's purpose unfolds in three phases through, through unwitting instruments. Why does that matter? So what, John? Here's the purpose statement. So that, let's make it really simple, we might see His place in our problems. That's the practical element here. It's not all just pie-in-the-sky theology stuff. It's boots on the ground so that we might see His place in our problems. Let's move from the greatest of truths to a lesser one. This implication here is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God was in control when these unwitting instruments put His beloved Son to death, well, then why, is God, why can't God be in control of every lesser evil that was committed? Wouldn't that make sense? If He's in the greatest evil, well, then He's in every other evil. He's in the middle of it, working His good in those instances. Write down the sentence. If God's sovereign over the cross, then He's sovereign over your circumstances. He's sovereign over our circumstances. He's sovereign over my circumstances. Even if that involves evil, heinous actions. If the threads of his sovereignty are woven into such an atrocity, why would you think they're not woven into yours? Why would I not think they're woven into mine? It's true what the Scriptures say. All things truly work for good for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That's true. The cross proves it to be true. This means that wherever we find ourselves, whether we find ourselves in tribulation, in distress, persecution, famine, danger, loss, whatever heartache, whatever heartbreak, Whether people are here or they're not, wherever they are, wherever we find ourselves, God is working for our good. Whatever evil has been done to us, if God can work out the greatest of evils for his good, why can't he work out these lesser evils for our good? Write down this sentence. The cross is our promise that God is working in and through our problems. The cross is our promise that God is working in and through our problems. When you look up at the cross, what do you see? A man rejected by men? A man acquainted with grief? The one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows? A man put to death by sinful men? Yes. But what you must always also see a man stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. A man crushed by God. a man put to grief by God, a man whom the Lord laid upon our iniquities. You must see a work of God. Otherwise, you won't see the work of God in your troubles. If God can work in that, He can work in whatever you're going through. If He can turn that for good, He can turn your situation for good. It's a promise. If we can see the cross from both perspectives, an action perpetrated by sinful men and an action brought about by the sovereign hand of God, then we'll find in one picture the solution for sin and the source of assurance. This is why the thought of of a completely sovereign God over everything, the, 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 the thought that that's not true, scares me to death. The only hope I can find in this world is that God is sovereign over every part of it. Every disgusting, despicable action, God is right there in the middle of it. To remove him from that is the scariest thing I could imagine. But if God is in it, that means he can work in it for my good. He can do something with it. And because he is only good forever, what else would he be able to do but good? Right? The cross is our promise that God is working in and through our problems. Sorry to yell at you. I'm yelling at myself. If God's sovereign over the cross, then He's sovereign over our circumstance. The threads of His sovereignty, this is two sentences, the threads of His sovereignty are inextricably woven into the fabric of our lives. And while we might think the seams of your tapestry, of our tapestry, are off, seam isn't working right. While we might think it's off, they are not. They're perfectly placed. God's promise that those, God promises that those seams will one day come together for our good. Amen? Joel.